This podcast discusses domestic violence, criminal behavior, murder, and adult themes. While not explicit, listener discretion is advised. Journal of Steve Powell, 1235 a.m., December 8, 2009. 14 hours following the first report of Susan Powell's disappearance. I am feeling sick because it is possible that Susan is dead. Monday morning, Jenny called from Josh's and Susan's house to tell us that the daycare lady had called her when they did not show up with the kids. The police came to their house and this information made us extremely fearful that they might be inside, asphyxiated from carbon monoxide, or dead from some other cause. It was a relief when the police reported that they were not in the house and their van was not in the garage. However, the day wore on slowly with no word, and with all of us wondering if they were abducted, or if they went on an outing and were killed or trapped in a car accident. In the evening, I went to the gym and while there received a call that Josh had shown up with the boys, but not with Susan. When I was finally able to speak to him at about 8.30, he said he saw her early Monday morning at just after midnight. He was leaving late for an outing with the boys. In the various conversations I had with him Monday evening between that time and nearly midnight, he said that he had bought a generator heater of some kind so he could go on winter outings. When he told Susan, who he said was in bed asleep, that they were leaving, he says, she said, whatever. He says he thought yesterday was Sunday, hence he did not call work, and when he realized his error, he was out of cell phone range. That does not make sense to me, since when I spoke to him Sunday at midday, he said Susan and the boys had gone to a steak conference that morning. He also mentioned that she was tired and took a nap that evening. Maybe she was already gone, and he told the boys she was just napping. None of us were able to reach him on his cell phone all day, and he attributes that to being in the backcountry. Susan's cell phone was with him. He says he was using it to look up a number and forgetfully put it in his pocket and forgot to take it out. So it was with him all day until he showed up at around 6 p.m. The story was so implausible and our conversation with Josh so unconvincing that I fear the worst. I think Susan is dead, and Josh spent the 20-hour lacuna disposing of her body far away. In the last two weeks, Josh bought an oxyacetylene welder and a rug doctor carpet cleaner. I had no clue why he might want a welder, but now I wonder if it was required for the process of mutilating or disintegrating her body. Maybe he really did not do anything to her, and she will show up alive. Maybe that is why he's not concerned. This is Cold, Episode 17, Cold Case. I'm Dave Cauley. Right back after this. There are so many aspects to the Susan Powell investigation, it's been hard to get them all into cold. If you want even more exclusive details regarding Susan's story, head over to Wondery.com plus and sign up now for access to bonus content you won't find anywhere else. That's Wondery.com plus. Again, W-O-N-D-E-R-Y dot com slash P-L-U-S to hear three bonus episodes you won't get anywhere else. 
Do you ever feel like you just need some support to get really healthy? Hi, I'm Scott Mitchell. And I'm Melanie Douglas. I'm on a journey to find lasting health in my everyday life. And I'm here to help. We'll find fun, doable ways to improve your health through small and simple changes. It's the Really Healthy Podcast. Subscribe for free on iTunes or the KSL News Radio app. Two days after Josh Powell murdered his sons, Charlie and Braden, his aunt and uncle, Maurice and Patty Leach, issued a written statement. It said Josh had represented himself with great restraint during the child custody proceedings. It said the murder-suicide was a result of questionable practices from government agencies, religious bias, internet kangaroo courts, and the news media. It said all the above had circumvented the Powell family's due process rights, and that was a national tragedy. Patty Leach was Steve Powell's sister. If there's anybody alive that has knowledge of what happened to Susan Powell, her family believes it's Stephen Powell, and he may perhaps be the best remaining lead in the investigation, despite the fact he's not talking. Not with police, anyway. While in prison, Steve exchanged letters with his niece, Nikki Cardenas. At the end of July 2012, Nikki sent him a copy of a CNN article about James Holmes, the Aurora, Colorado movie theater mass shooter. I mentioned a couple episodes back that West Valley Police Detective Daryl Dane had adopted the phony persona of Seamus from the Department of Defense during a meeting with Steve around that same time. It turns out Seamus planted a seed. After Michael committed suicide in February of 2013, Steve became convinced this shadowy figure, Seamus, was responsible for both the Aurora shooting and Michael's suicide. He supposed the Army, using Seamus, had delivered psychotropic drugs to both Holmes and Michael. Or maybe it was a chemical weapon procured from the Army's Deseret Chemical Depot in, of course, Utah. Steve also wondered if Seamus had engineered the December 2012 mass shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut. They were all connected in Steve's mind, part of a single, sprawling conspiracy. Just days before Michael Powell's suicide, Washington State Senator Pam Roach introduced Senate Bill 5162. We do have a judge that did have material from West Valley Police and uh, chose to ignore it. We have a judge who did order a psychosexual evaluation, chose to make decisions without the results of that order. SB 5162 was not a very catchy name. Supporters called it Charlie and Braden's Law. Steve Powell called it the Cox-Roach Bill. We had a fast track for reunification. DSHS, though, they recommended to the judge that Josh uh, Powell not have the kids, were nonetheless on a fast track reunification. That's what two days a week for two hours a, a, a visit is. Chuck and Judy Cox traveled to Olympia to speak in support of the bill. Without this law, a surviving spouse is essentially able to achieve custody by murder or, as in this case, causing the disappearance of Charlie and Braden's mother, then refusing to cooperate with police. Put simply, the bill was meant to prohibit parents suspected of murder from having access to their kids until the murder case was resolved. 
It would have cemented in law many of the suggestions made by the DSHS Review Board after Josh killed Charlie and Braden. DSHS and others like West Valley Police, Pierce County Police, um, did not take it seriously. And so because of that, we felt this was a big problem and why it was, in our opinion, treated lightly that the boys would be okay. Rick Bartholomew from the Washington State Bar Association said the bill was problematic. For example, some investigations will take years um, and ultimately a person can be exonerated or at least the investigation doesn't, uh, doesn't prove anything. The bill underwent some changes to address those concerns and on March 12, 2013, the Washington State Senate voted 48 to one in favor sending the bill to the House where it stalled, indefinitely. Charlie and Braden's law never actually became law. That is, at least not in Washington. First substitute, Senate Bill 173, having received 72 yes votes, zero no votes, passes the House, will be signed by the Speaker and returned to the Senate for the signature of the President. The following year, in 2014, the Utah legislature passed a similar bill. The bill has been changed dramatically in order to thread the needle between uh, protecting parental rights and also protecting the rights of children in these very unusual and unique situations and infrequent situations. SB 173 changed Utah law, empowering the courts and child welfare workers to keep minor children away from a parent suspected of murder. Journal of Steve Powell, 5.35 a.m., December 8, 2009. Nineteen hours following the first report of Susan Powell's disappearance. Sunday night, it snowed all night. So Josh headed out after midnight to camp with the boys. It was snowing like gangbusters by the time he got out of ways, so according to his story, he decided it was too late to return, and so he kept going. Why? The whole thing sounds so wrong, even if it had nothing to do with disposing of Susan's body. Why would anybody do that? And furthermore, why would anybody believe that someone would go out in that weather just for an outing? Michael and Alina are very supportive of Josh and advised him to tighten up his story as it sounds weak and unconvincing. Josh responded that the police may already have tapped his phone, which was the same as saying, be careful what you say. Michael commented that he blamed his mother for this. He said, she is the reason I will probably never get married. So I guess Michael, like me, has learned to distrust the marriage principle. John seems to be a misogynist, and Josh has suffered through a mutually hateful marriage relationship since April 2001. Josh's and Susan's mutual disdain was evident from nearly the beginning of their relationship. I am so tired, but can't seem to sleep. I emailed in my request for sick leave a few minutes ago. West Valley City Police were fast approaching the end of the road. In early 2013, leads in the search for Susan were dwindling. Yet public focus on the case remained high. Yeah, there's a lot of people in the country and the world that wanted answers from the media all the way down to the Cox family because, you know, believe it or not, they didn't know a whole lot more than anybody else. As lead detective, Ellis Maxwell served as keeper of the case files. 
He'd organized reports, warrant affidavits, interview transcripts, and everything else for more than three years. You know, over the course of the investigation, I had managed the digital case file. So, you know, I'd, I'd kind of prepared it as, as we were moving through so that when we went into a trial, it was all done, and I could just hand it over to the attorneys. With no chance of a criminal prosecution, West Valley faced a question. What to do with all those documents? I don't think the department could just stand back and go, no. Uh, they're going to have to release um, some information, and there's a lot of information. The city had received a large number of requests for copies of case files under GRAMA, Utah's open records law. It was decided to sit down and, and go through that entire file and redact it, and, and then you know it came down to, okay, do we just release it all or let the GRAMA request come in? And the decision made, was made to just uh, make a public release of it. But the job of redacting all those documents blacking out sensitive information like medical or financial data, names of potential witnesses, police operational plans, took a lot of time. You know, we spent days in a, in a big conference room, and uh, there was, gosh, like eight or ten of us. And they weren't just detectives. There was a lot of uh, attorneys in there. And, you know, it was basically myself, maybe a couple of detectives, the rest was legal, going through and redacting all of that information. And, uh, yeah, it was a daunting task, to say the least. I mean, there's thousands and thousands of documents and reports, and, um, yeah. Before they could give any of those documents out, police also had to ask a judge to rescind the secrecy order that had surrounded the case since its inception. The only reason it happened is because the case essentially came to an end. Like, there, there's nobody that can be held accountable. This case is never going to go into the justice system. So now we've reached a point that there, we can't... There's no reason to retain that information and keep it close. Before taking that step... West Valley Police wanted to finish one more search, this time in Scotts Mills, Oregon. Police say they remain committed to the case and finding closure for Susan's family. We can't forget the Cox family, the effect that this has had on them. Detectives had come across information about a piece of property in Scotts Mills, where Josh's aunt and uncle, Patty and Maurice Leach, had previously lived. They had rented a house on 176 heavily wooded acres in the rural area northeast of Salem. The information that we'd received is that it was possible that, you know, because Josh traveled several hundred miles, and if he was to relocate this body, it is probable that he could have made it to this area and disposed of or buried her body there. The mileage meant Josh could not have made it to Scott's Mills in the rental car alone. In order for this theory to work, he'd have needed an assist from Michael or Steve. There was a little bit of time, like a day, maybe, that we couldn't really account for Steve. Not a whole day, but you know, maybe 12 hours or 6 hours or something like that. And it kind of fell in line with this whole piece of property was related to Steve's family. Josh and Susan had also visited the property once together. After Susan disappeared and Josh moved to Washington, 
Maurice and Patty had invited Josh to come visit again in order to get away from the media. But Josh never took them up on the offer. West Valley Police obtained a federal search warrant. They briefed the Marion County Sheriff's Office and, on May 14, 2013, arrived in Scotts Mills with a team of cadaver dogs. There was a lot of digging and a lot of searching of this ground. The dogs indicated the possible presence of decomposition at one location. Police spent an entire day there raking and probing the ground, running the dogs over and over it. Ultimately, they didn't find anything. No body, no evidence. Today, police conceded they're coming to the end of their list of leads, and they even acknowledged the possibility the Susan Powell case could even become a cold case. Obviously, Susan's still missing, so there are pieces that we don't have. There's information we don't have. Police did not publicly reveal at the time that while those dogs were searching in Scott's Mills, a detective and FBI agent were in nearby Silverton, grilling Josh's uncle, Maurice Leach. Maurice had agreed to take a lie detector test. An FBI polygrapher came down from Portland. During the interview, police records say Maurice told the agent he believed Charlie and Braden were still alive. Steve had told Maurice the pictures the FBI had showed him following the fire were unrecognizable and possibly staged. Detective Alva Davis told Maurice that was not the case. He had personally seen the bodies. Over the course of their hours-long conversation, Maurice's perspective changed. Police records say he expressed anger at Josh and Michael, saying they had lied to him. He wanted to have words with Steve, because Steve had told him the police had made up the stuff about finding pictures of young, naked neighbor girls in his house. I have made several attempts to contact Maurice, but he has never responded to my messages. Cops arrived here on Tuesday. They combed acre after acre, but ultimately called the search when cadaver dogs didn't turn up leads. We have not rested. We have not had a break. We have been diligent and meticulously investigating this entire case. West Valley Police returned home from Oregon on May 16th, 2013, empty-handed. You know, at this point, you know, a lot of us are just tired. You know, it's been a long investigation. And when I say tired, like, we're not physically tired, but we're just mentally, like, you only... I mean, I don't know how many times an individual can uh, come across a potential breaking lead in a case and be shut down. It's like, nope, this ain't it. Need to go find something else. And uh, so I I think we were all hopeful. I was hopeful. But uh, again, at the end of the day, just tons of resources and uh, no results. But, you know, we were able to say that she wasn't there. Detectives were not alone in feeling that sense of exhaustion. Chuck Cox was not ready to stop searching. He wondered if Susan's body might have ended up much closer to home, Steve Powell's home. Earlier this year, a Washington judge awarded Powell's victims two young girls $1.8 million. Powell is now claiming he's just recently learned about the damages and is in no position to pay up. But Steve did have assets, including the South Hill house, 
from which he had once filmed those underage neighbor girls. The family of the two little girls that Stephen Powell was convicted of photographing now own that house. They were awarded that property in a court-ordered settlement. Chuck, working with his attorney and a private investigator, brought cadaver dogs to the house. They probed the yard on the suspicion that Josh or Steve might have buried Susan there. Just as with the police in Oregon, Chuck Cox did not find anything. Journal of Steve Powell, 6.30 a.m., December 8, 2009, 20 hours following the first report of Susan Powell's disappearance. Where is Susan? If she were alive, someone would have heard from her. This morning, it will begin sinking in to her co-workers that she is not coming back. Will Josh drop the boys off at the daycare when he goes to his 9 o'clock appointment with the police? Will Josh still be walking free after the 9 o'clock appointment, or will they lock him up? Through the night, I tried to think of things Josh said last night that might suggest that he truly does not have a clue where Susan is. Maybe his story came out sounding cockeyed because he was so tired. Michael suggested to Alina and me that if he has killed Susan, it was probably not premeditated, since the story is so poorly planned. If the worst happened, that is, he killed her, did he bury her body? Will it ever be found? Frequently, the police break down perpetrators during interrogation, and they end up leading them to where the body is buried. Although her parents mean nothing to me, I feel deeply for them, whatever the outcome. I cannot imagine there will be a good outcome. Four days after the end of the search in Scotts Mills, Oregon, West Valley City leaders called a press conference. After three-plus long years of the investigation into the disappearance of Susan Powell, We are announcing the end of the active phase of the search for Susan. The case had gone cold. Today, Susan is still missing. We do not know where she is or what happened to her. That same day, the city attorney and detective Daryl Dane, a.k.a. Seamus, went to court and asked a judge to lift the secrecy order. I had to sit down myself and, you know, my supervisors. We had to sit down with the Cox family and uh, share everything with them first. And so we met with them and and we shared with them everything that we could share with them. And uh, I believe we gave their attorney a copy of that release on a USB drive. Next, reporters received their copies of the redacted case file on 32 gigabyte flash drives. Tens of thousands of pages. And as you go through those, it'll be easy to Monday morning quarterback, perhaps. Uh, But I think at the end of the day, you'll see a police force that was completely dedicated from the beginning, completely professional from the beginning, and did everything they could do to, to find Susan and bring her home. Technically, the Powell case remained open. There were still loose ends, including the ongoing efforts to crack the encryption on one of Josh's hard drives. So that version of the case file released to the media was a snapshot in time. Going forward, Ellis continued to care for the case file. From that point, I ended up leaving the major crimes unit and went to managing the sex offender compliance program. And then I developed a college internship program 
and so I ran both of those and took care of the Powell case and every once in a while I would handle some other investigative cases as they came along but uh, yeah I did that uh, from 13 up until December 15 when I retired I had my 20 years and I was done I was out <laughs> Public release of the redacted case file was a huge win for Susan's family. They seized on the documents. Within days, they began handing out flyers along I-84 from Pendleton, Oregon to Tremont in Utah. The search for missing Utah mom Susan Powell has led Chuck Cox to a small Tremonton florist. It's his first time in Utah in more than six months. His hope of finding her was renewed after West Valley police disclosed all their investigation materials. Hopefully we get some more tips, some new tips. And uh, we did, actually, result of the KSL coverage of that. But the redacted case file didn't paint the whole picture. Important details about Josh and Michael's relationship and movements in the days after Susan's disappearance were not included. We decided we needed to come down and uh, put out these flyers and get some attention to the people who live along that corridor. The public learned of Michael dumping his Ford Taurus, but not the fine detail of his apparent later paranoia over it not having been destroyed. People seized on the reports of Josh having had an affair, not realizing those tips had been discredited. The redacted case file held many, many rabbit holes. I don't think an average person uh, could sit down and look at this and really wrap their mind around it because there's just, there's way too much information, way too many details. There was a hundred different directions that this case could have gone. Journal of Steve Powell, 8 a.m., December 8, 2009. 22 hours following the first report of Susan Powell's disappearance. I am so tired, but unable to sleep. I've been lying here thinking about my grandsons, Charlie and Braden. Could Josh do something like this to their mother? Last night, Josh went to the recycler to find a stout piece of cardboard to cover the broken window. He said there was a picture of a woman on the carton. As it lay on the living room floor, Braden laid down on it, and said, Mommy, that was painful to hear. I told Michael and Alina that no matter what Susan's problems were, she did not deserve the death penalty. Neither one has any sympathy for her. Alina is aware, and I think Michael, too, that I was in love with Susan, yet neither seems to be sensitive to any feelings I may have in the matter of her possible demise that they are so anxious to show solidarity with Josh is also troubling. I need to be of the same attitude for the sake of the boys as well as Josh, who, after all, is my son. The way his mother and her family treated him while growing up is no excuse for anything he may have done in this matter, but I am not the court or a jury. I am his father. Steve Powell completed his sentence on the voyeurism charges and left prison on March 23, 2014. And I knew it was coming and it was going to be today and, you know, it, it had to come. And so I'm not particularly pleased about it, but it, 
Had to come. Jennifer Graves had no intention of reconciling with her father, who was then a registered sex offender. Powell will be on probation for 30 months, required to wear a GPS locator and attend a sex offender treatment program. The corrections facility says he plans to live in Tacoma. That plan soon fell apart. In July, the Washington Court of Appeals reinstated the child pornography count that Judge Ronald Culpepper had tossed out at the beginning of Steve's 2012 trial. Steve appealed to the Washington State Supreme Court, but the High Court declined to take the case. So, on October 27, 2014, Pierce County prosecutors obtained a new arrest warrant for Steve Powell. Steve and his sole surviving son, John, were at the time living together at a halfway house in Tacoma's Hilltop area. Pierce County Sheriff's Detective Sergeant Gary Sanders went and knocked on the door. He was surprised. He tried shutting the door on me, but the warrant, you don't get to shut the door. So John opened the door, and I said, is your dad here? And then and Steve was like, well, no, you guys, you know. And I was like, no, cut the warrant. So I was able to put him in handcuffs again and take him back to jail one more time. Gary slapped a pair of pink handcuffs on Steve's wrists. Only two times I've used pink handcuffs. You used those? Yes. Um, handcuffs that uh, a certain detective from West Valley gave me. Steve's prison letters had revealed he believed police couldn't arrest him again on the child pornography charge. He figured that would amount to double jeopardy. That's not exactly how double jeopardy works. Steve's second trial did not go any better for him than the first. On July 15, 2015, a jury found him guilty. The judge sentenced him to five additional years in prison. In August of 2015, Steve appealed that conviction. Washington's Court of Appeals heard arguments, then rejected the appeal. Steve, in 2017, asked the Washington Supreme Court to review his case. Again, the court declined. Steve was stuck. About a month before Michael jumped from the parking garage in Minneapolis, Chuck Cox had gone to court in Utah and asked to be named conservator of his daughter's estate. Susan, in the eyes of the law, was still alive and would be until five years after the date of her disappearance. Chuck's move put him in position to exercise authority over Josh and Susan's trust and, by extension, her share of the life insurance money. After Michael's suicide, Chuck amended the trust, making himself sole trustee. He froze out Josh's mom, Teresa, and sister, Alina. Steve had voluntarily surrendered any claim to the money. That might seem a noble gesture, but remember Steve owed his voyeurism victims restitution. It was in his best interest to be penniless. A year later, in May of 2014, the federal court in Tacoma decided the interpleader lawsuit over the life insurance money. It split the proceeds like this. Two and a half million dollars to Susan's estate, three quarters of a million dollars to Michael's estate, about $21,000 to Alina, and $16,000 to John. Attorney Ann Bremner considered it a victory for the Cox family. You know, we won the insurance battle. But hang on a second. That October... Josh's mom, Terry, sued Chuck. In her complaint, she said Chuck's change to the trust had been illegal. 
She wanted an injunction to keep him from spending any of the money. Terry argued she was entitled to half of the proceeds through the trust, an amount totaling $1.1 million. Terry and Chuck ended up settling out of court in 2015. Terms of the arrangement were not disclosed. When Michael killed himself, I thought, case over, right, we're done. But we weren't. Here came the rest of the pals. That's an understandable perspective, given what I've just described. But let's talk about Terry for a minute. You haven't really heard Terry Powell's voice in this podcast, aside from that first 911 call she made the day of Susan's disappearance. There's a reason for that. Terry has shunned the media. She's repeatedly expressed a desire to have no contact when I've reached out to her. But Terry did speak with police during the investigation, and what she said can provide some insight on her mindset. You know, I've blocked so much of it out, I can't even remember. In fact, I'm surprised I can even talk about it. Usually, I'm just falling apart. Jump back to February 2010. Jennifer Graves had just confronted Josh while wearing a wire. Steve was formulating his theory about Susan running off to Brazil. And Terry sat down to speak with Ellis Maxwell. I want Susan found. Yeah. I want the truth known. I want my family well. I don't know what we're going to have to go through from here to there. I don't know either. I want my family well. Terry shared many of the troubling events from her divorce. She described how Steve had manipulated the kids, exposing them to pornography and turning them against her. She said she'd felt concern at one point that Steve had inappropriate interest in the children, though she never saw him act on it. Terry didn't seem to remember Josh having threatened her with a knife when he was a teenager, a claim documented in her divorce records. Uh, one thing I'd like to mention, I don't know if I've ever specifically said this, I've, I've never known Josh to be violent. Mm-hmm. I've never seen him violent. Mm-hmm. But I can ever recall. I, I can't imagine him being that way. Mm-hmm. But I think that that's significant, you know what I mean? It's something that you should hear from me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Ellis observed there were similarities between how Steve had treated Terry and how Josh had treated Susan. Terry couldn't see it. I don't see Josh as manipulative. Mm-hmm. I do see him as, you know, he'll get in and get things done. And he also had, has a certain disregard for trying, you know, to accommodate other people and their needs. But he also seems very gentle. Terry would give her son the benefit of the doubt. The, the kids care about Josh. And they, you know, they want to see, um, they want to help him. But I didn't get any sense when I've been around them. And, and they're willing to do that. They're willing to help him which I'm, you know, I've been glad for because I felt like he needed help somehow or another. Ellis, as gently as he could, tried to warn Terry that the person responsible for Susan's disappearance would be held accountable. Eventually there'll be, uh, somebody's gonna have to, yeah, somebody's gonna have to account for it. But as we now know, no one ever has. Back after this. Journal of Steve Powell, 8.45 a.m., December 8, 2009. 
23 hours following the first report of Susan Powell's disappearance. I went into Alina's room a few minutes ago to find out if she has heard anything. I was crying. Alina mentioned she has mixed feelings about being perfectly straightforward if called on to testify about their relationship. She did not think Susan was quite the bitch Josh made her out to be and thinks Josh may have helped turn her into a bitch. I can't disagree with that, and I am with Alina on that. However, I said we should support him in any way we can, partly for the sake of the boys. I doubt Susan is alive, and I doubt Josh's hands are clean. If he murdered her, I wish he had not. But she did treat him in an almost schizophrenic way, and a person can only take so much. Chuck and Judy Cox had first filed their wrongful death lawsuit against Washington State in the Pierce County Superior Court. In late November 2014, it jumped to the U.S. District Court in Tacoma. The suit accused Washington's Department of Social and Health Services, DSHS, as well as the social workers who had handled Charlie and Braden's case of failing to protect the boys, ignoring the threat Josh presented. We want the DSHS to switch gears, which is, it's the best interest of the child, that's what they should be looking at, not reunification at any cost. Attorney Ann Bremner and the rest of the team took that argument to the judge. What we're saying is based on the facts that I think everybody knows, is that there were red flags about Josh, the biggest one being the disappearance of his wife and his involvement. On October 7, 2015, the federal district court ruled against the Coxes. In his decision, Judge Ronald Layton wrote the court could not exercise the luxury of hindsight in judging the social workers for failing to prevent the murder. Layton said federal law provided the social workers absolute immunity. DSHS, he said, had done its job in notifying the state court of the goings-on, so it also could not be blamed. According to the order... Pierce County Superior Court Judge Catherine Nelson's decision to allow visitation at Josh Powell's house was the closest thing to a cause for the murder. In a footnote, Judge Layton also mentioned the failed effort to pass Charlie and Braden's law in Washington. He called it bad public policy in general, even though he conceded it would have benefited everyone in the Powell case. On this, the judge and Ann Bremner disagreed. It should be the law in every state in the nation. It's pretty simple. Pretty simple, right? Two months later, the Coxes appealed the ruling to the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. It took two years before the appeals court heard oral arguments on the case. The CPS workers failed to even review the divorce file. Had they reviewed it, is there something they would have found there that you think would have changed this outcome? I, yes, Your Honor, I believe that they would have. They would have found that... He had threatened to kill his mother with a knife when he was younger, that he had killed animals before. All classic signs of people who can snap, people who can do very violent things. Attorney Ted Buck argued the case on behalf of the Coxes in Seattle on December 4, 2017, almost eight years to the day after Susan's disappearance. The court assumed, without evidence in the record, that Judge Nelson had as much information as the law enforcement officers who were warning the social workers, that they had concerns about the safety of the boys, that Judge Nelson had as much information 
as the Coxes, who had known Josh Powell for years, as his own sister, who obviously had known him for many, many years. The court assumed that the judge knew that visitations were regularly occurring at the Powell House when the record does not support that. Assistant Washington Attorney General Peter Helmberger argued the hunches and beliefs of Susan's friends and family members were not grounds for concern over and above what the family court already knew. He noted Charlie and Braden had not been afraid of their father. In fact, they had dashed to greet him at every visit. It wasn't concerned based on him being violent towards his children unsupervised. It's there had to be a finding, and there was. The box yeah. was checked, that the children were at risk of danger. And that's, yes. that was the, 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 the justification for requiring supervised visitation with the natural father, right? Correct. But it wasn't, it wasn't based on any reports or allegations of, of abuse, of physical abuse directed towards, we understand. towards his children. Chuck left the courtroom that day feeling confident. To me, it was like, why aren't you ruling now? Ninth Circuit, they were very impressive in their ability to get past the bull and down to the truth. So Chuck waited for good news. None came. Time went by, and he was reduced to waiting for any news. On January 10th, 2019, right in the middle of this podcast, the appeals court released its decision. The opinion from the appeals court upheld the immunity for the social workers, meaning they could not be sued as individuals. But the appeals court reversed the district court's decision regarding DSHS, sending the Cox family's negligence claim against the state of Washington back down for trial. A jury needs to be able to determine whether, in the face of all of those risks, the state was deliberately indifferent in not moving visitation back to a secure facility and not assuring that you had a supervisor there who could intervene. These are jury issues. As I record this, that trial is still to come. Anne Bremner said she still hopes a jury will find in their favor, forcing a change in priorities and placing the safety of children above the parental rights of suspected murderers. And it's going to mean a lot to me and to the Coxes if we get that. It'll mean everything. Of course, one could also argue Washington might not have needed to protect Charlie and Braden from Josh if police in Utah had arrested him in the first place. In the years since the murder-suicide, many people have accused the West Valley City Police Department of botching the case. So, I asked Dallas Maxwell point-blank if he agreed. No, absolutely not. We didn't botch the case. Um... It just comes from ignorance, in my opinion. But, you know, I respect it, and I understand where they would come up with that. Not knowing everything that I know, you know, and uh, the rest of the investigative team, it's easy for people to, you know, Monday morning quarterback the case. Super easy. So I don't get offended when I hear it. And I think the reason why is because I understand where they're coming from. But why didn't Ellis just arrest Josh? We were getting there, but, you know, Josh beat us to the punch, unfortunately. Ellis told me he had hoped to screen the case against Josh for formal charges, body or no body, in the spring of 2012. Which raises an interesting point. The case had never been screened. And the tragedy is that we were moving towards that process. Now, we don't get to control human behavior. Salt Lake County District Attorney Sim Gill came into office in 2011, midway through the Powell investigation. 
He learned that while members of his staff had worked with police on search warrants and subpoenas, detectives and prosecutors had not met to review the evidence in a holistic way. I wanted to make sure that everybody who was part of the investigation got to give their input, as well as a collaborative collective of uh, legal minds who said, okay, what is the flexibility of the range of our options that we have? Deputy DA Blake Nakamura told me prosecutors were willing to go forward with a no-body case, but it depended on police chasing down every possible lead. The unique challenge in those kinds of cases is it creates an opportunity for all these alternative explanations that are contrary to what the allegation of a homicide would be. They went off, they met somebody else, they had debt and so they were trying to leave the debt. Remember, there only has to be one person saying I have some reasonable doubt. As we've seen, the Powell family worked hard to create those alternative explanations. Susan ran off to Brazil with Stephen Kocher. Susan was sexually motivated. Susan was suicidal. Susan had abused her boys. And when you're having to defeat that by circumstantial evidence that the person no is gone, like no contact with family, no activity in financial records, that tends to create a compelling picture but when you're dealing with reasonable doubt, sometimes that's not enough. It might seem likely to the majority of people that Josh Powell killed his wife. But prosecutors needed evidence to prove that. It's not a, just the court of public opinion that gives you a successful prosecution. It's the evidence that's necessary under our rule of law with the burden of proofs that we have. When you don't have that physical body, when that forensic piece is missing, there is a whole host of logical possibilities. And if I have more than one logical possibility in any realistic sense, I have reasonable doubt. Not arresting Josh at the outset had been a tactical decision. Even now, Sim does not second guess it. This is not television. This isn't CSI. This isn't cutaways where you browbeat somebody and they confess. This is real life. And of course, there would have been no point in arresting Josh from the beginning if prosecutors were not at that point prepared to file charges. When decisions are made to file or not file, those are not light decisions. They're not light decisions because it is a situation where if we file and we're not successful in that, we can't go back and say, geez, can you give us another shot? If they had charged Josh with murder and a jury acquitted him, it wouldn't have mattered if someone later discovered Susan's body. Double jeopardy would have prohibited them from charging him again. In the wake of the Powell case, Sim instituted changes within the district attorney's office. They mandated in-person screenings of homicide cases before a team of prosecutors, ensuring a diversity of viewpoints and rigorous debate over the strength of the evidence. It's tough to say if that process could have changed the outcome in the Powell case were it in place from the beginning. But Sim, like Ellis, does not believe police botched the investigation. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. If anything, what I want to communicate from what we learned and what we observed and what we interacted with, that commitment to finding the truth, they never wavered from that. On June 6th, 
2017, I mailed a letter to Steve Powell. In it, I described my work on this podcast and expressed my interest in speaking with him. In particular, I hoped Steve and I could discuss his planned autobiography, which he had outlined and given the tentative title, Somewhere on the Moon. Steve didn't respond to my letter. A few weeks later, Steve left prison again after serving just a fraction of his five-year sentence. He had received time off for good behavior. I actually staked out his address during a visit to Tacoma that October, but I never saw him. Thus far, my dad's been pretty closed-mouthed about everything in relation to this case, and I don't think he'll ever change that. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, miracles happen, but I don't see it happening at this point. I do believe that he knows about stuff that Josh probably told him stuff. Maybe he wasn't privy to it as, as he was planning or, or uh, executing his plan. But I think that in, you know, at the end, he was told. I think he knows. Will he ever tell? I doubt it. Pierce County Sheriff's Detective Sergeant Gary Sanders kept tabs on Steve after he left prison. At that point, Gary was running the county's sex offender monitoring program. And they notified us that he was up in King County, which kind of threw us off um, because of health issues. Steve's health had taken a nosedive. In the summer of 2018, Gary learned Steve had been admitted to St. Joseph Medical Center in Tacoma. Gary called the hospital in the hopes Steve might make a dying declaration. But the hospital told him Steve was getting better. They mentioned that he was uh, on progression, uh, getting towards outpatient and being released and stuff. Um, so I kind of, I was still monitoring him, but I was not as concerned for the dying declaration. Then, just before 5 a.m. on July 22nd, 2018, Steve Powell died at the hospital from severe cardiomyopathy, heart failure. No one bothered to inform Gary. And I called down there to see, you know, hey, how is he doing? Where was he at? He's still in the hospital. And um, they initially wouldn't tell me anything just because of rules and stuff. And then I explained because of the monitoring and they, they informed me that he'd passed away. Word of Steve Powell's death started to spread. I learned of it early the morning of July 24th. I immediately sent a text message to Ellis. Matter of fact, <laughs> when I learned of, uh, from you, from uh, Steve's passing, I fired off a text to a couple of other guys that I'm real close with that were a great asset to the investigation. And, you know, we had our chuckles and, you know, there wasn't a lot of, a lot of love lost there. So, I mean, we still talk about Steve Chantry and his music and... <laughs> You know, we're cops, we laugh about it. That's how we get through things. Chuck Cox reacted differently to Steve's death. And when Steve passed, I got thinking, what a waste of a life. He, he's, he ruined this, the lives of his children, his family. He took my daughter and the grandchildren, tore apart his own family, and now he's gone. Just what a loss. Steve's death certificate showed he was cremated on August 6th of 2018. It listed his youngest daughter, Alina, as his next of kin. Many news stories at the time suggested Steve had died knowing important information about the whereabouts of Susan's body. 
But Gary, like Ellis, wasn't so sure. Did you hold much hope that he might say anything, or was that kind of a slim chance in your mind? I think it was a slim chance. Um, he, he didn't... I don't, I don't think he would have told us. And, I, and to be honest, I don't know if he did know. Journal of Steve Powell, 10.30 p.m., December 8, 2009. 36 hours following the first report of Susan Powell's disappearance. I feel like Josh did a truly stupid thing and probably disposed of her body in a very grotesque way. I think he probably went to some former industrial land just west of West Valley City and cremated her. I don't see how he could live with an image like that in his mind. I want Josh to be with his boys, but I am also angry with him for murdering such a beautiful woman. That he could do such a thing once suggests that he could do it again. If things go too badly, he could murder the boys and hang himself to avoid going to prison and leaving them with the Mormon families that would no doubt take custody of them. Josh's life with Susan was utterly miserable, as was hers with him. Why she stayed with him, I do not know. Evidently, this tragedy is my answer for why Josh hung on. He wanted to do it his way and avoid a messy and costly divorce. I have news for him. This will be a very costly process and he may lose anyway. Why someone who is otherwise so smart would do something so utterly stupid is beyond me. Years ago, I made up my mind that Josh was, of my kids, capable of doing such a thing. But our conversations of late suggested that I had nothing to worry about, although I thought about it with concern at times. He seemed resolved that doing something so callous would be most disruptive to his and his children's lives. Now, I wish I had talked more about the likelihood that someone involved in such a crime would be caught. If I had only known, if I could only turn back time. On the conclusion of Cold. Sometimes it isn't possible. Sometimes the right decision is to get out. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Cold toss us a rating or a review. You can find Cold on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Cold Podcast. For video clips, pictures from the case, and more, hit up thecoldpodcast.com. Also, if Susan's story sounds familiar in your own life, in other words, if you or someone you know is experiencing domestic abuse in any form, please get immediate help. In the U.S., Support is a phone call away at the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233 or online at www.thehotline.org. A quick thank you to the team. Kristen Sorensen, Eric Openshaw, Ken Fall, Danielle Prager, Kira Faramond, Becky Bruce, Josh Tilton, Adam Mason, Jillian Friedman, and especially Cheryl Worsley. The music for Cold was composed by Michael Bonmiller, except for the guitar stuff. That was me. Cold is a KSL podcast. Thank you for listening.